morning, everybody. It's, this is my first visit to uh, Charleston, and I'm really uh, a very beautiful city. I haven't seen much of it yet, but I'm looking forward to seeing more of the city. Just drove in this morning and looked at some of the houses and lovely churches. So it's a real privilege to be here. I'm from Seattle. Uh, a few months ago, I returned from a few years of teaching in southern China, hometown of Chairman Mao, actually. And uh, I was helping high school students who wanted to come to America to study in American universities. And so on the one hand, we were teaching English curriculum, and I was basically going through a lot of West, the Western canon of thought, going through Augustine, and Sermon on the Mount, and Voltaire, and things like that. Um, and at the same time, the students were studying their regular Chinese curriculum to pass the high school graduation test. And one day, I asked one of my students, about their history book, if I could borrow a copy of their history text. It was a history of the world, and I wanted to see how the Chinese government is, uh, I don't know if I want to use the word brainwashing or not, but teaching their young people about the history of the world history. So this girl, who's now at Ohio State, named Carrot, she lent me a copy of her textbook. And I looked through it, I read through the whole book, and I, was, I told them beforehand I had find at least 20 or 30 errors in the book. A little arrogant, maybe, but uh, I did find those errors, but they weren't where, exactly where I expected them to be. I was expecting that there would be some, maybe some anti-American propaganda, but there wasn't really. They were fairly objective, of course, very patriotic and pro-Chinese in what they said about America. It wasn't even very anti-Japanese, which, which really surprised me, because most of the media in, in China is very anti-Japanese, and most of the people feel the same way. But what they did do, what they did contain, the book did contain, was a lot of anti-Christian propaganda. And that really took me by surprise. First of all, because there's not that many Christians in, in that part of China. But what they did was they pre presented history as two great streams of enlightenment thought that flow together and become what you could call neo-Marxist, neo Marxism light which is the defining ideology of modern China. One of them arose in ancient Greece, and the other arose in ancient Confucian China. And the two streams are parallel. The two streams are equally anti-religious or free from religious uh, deception. And what they presented Western thought as being is kind of the, the ancient Greece had invented well, science, philosophy, and this huge, enormous outburst, big bang of intellectual vibrancy and, and, and creativity in ancient, especially centered on Athens, of course. Then, after a few centuries, Christian theology dragged Western civilization down into a dungeon of ignorance and imprisoned Western civilization in a dark ages which lasted for several hundred years, maybe a thousand years, until finally the Enlightenment dawned and Western people began to escape from the shackles of theology and began to think about man's place in the universe instead of God. A big waste of time. So I felt right at home. I had taught in the Washington State, Washington State School District, and that's basically the approach they took, too. 
The only difference was the Washington State history texts, aside from disparaging Christianity, they also praised Islam to the skies. And the textbooks in uh, China didn't do that. So I actually thought they might have a slight advantage in the matter. Coming back here to the United States, I was writing this book, and the reason I came back was in part because of the new book, Jesus, Jesus is No Myth. And as I began to talk to people about this book, I realized the, that um, anti-Christian propaganda in the United States, part of it is centered on this particular question of who Jesus was, who Jesus is. In fact, I began to he hear from a lot of people who had been influenced by a gentleman by the name of Bart Ehrman in particular. Now, the book deals with some other people too, but I want to focus this morning a little bit on Bart Ehrman because of all the, the impact that he's had on American society in the last couple decades. My sister told me that her neighbors, who I also knew, had listened to a series on religion by Dr. Ehrman, who teaches at uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and lost their faith. The nephew of a woman who goes to my wife's Japanese church. She's, the, we have, downstairs is Japanese, upstairs it's, it's Norwegian, actually. Had read Ehrman and lost his faith as well. And she was feeling rather sad about that, a woman that I know. Then I heard from a pastor in uh, North Carolina whose son had gone to Ehrman's class and lost his faith as well. And she said she felt like Monica uh, St. Augustine's mother, who was praying for her son's return to faith. A Presbyterian pastor from the Seattle area emailed me and said several members of his church had left the church after reading Dr. Ehrman. Anne Rice, the vampire diary, diarist, describes Ehrman as a humble, polite, and patient scholar who bridges the gap between New Testament scholarship and amateurs like herself. Well, that may be true, if you are a wolf seeking to prey on sheep, it works to be humble and polite and patient. A wolf in sheep's clothing, as Jesus put it. Because Dr. Ehrman bridges the gap not only between scholarship and the common reader, but also from Christianity into a post-Christian worldview for a lot of his readers. And I came to, feel, came to realize that Ehrman is not only wrong, he's also dangerous for many people, and he's culpable. He's also instructive. His, readings, his writings are also instructive. I want to talk about those a little bit, but I want to focus particularly on the gentleman that uh, Wallace just mentioned, Apollonius of Tyana. This is how Dr. Ehrman introduces Jesus to his students at Chapel Hill. He wants to how do you introduce Jesus to his students from a scholarly perspective? His, this is his scholarly introduction to his young 18-year-old students. He talks not about Jesus, but he begins by talking about Apollonius of Tyana. In many of his books, he mentions this gentleman, Apollonius. Before he was born, his mother had a visitor from heaven who told her that, he, that her son would not be merely immortal, but in fact would be divine. His birth was accompanied by unusual divine signs in the heaven. As an adult, he left his home to engage in an itinerant preaching ministry. 
he gathered a number of followers around him who became convinced that he was no ordinary human, but that he was the son of God. And he did miracles to confirm their, them and their beliefs. He could heal the sick, cast out demons, and raise the dead. At the end of his life, he aroused opposition among the ruling authorities of Rome and was put on trial, but they could not kill his soul. Does that sound like anybody you know? Yeah, it's supposed to sound like somebody you know. It's supposed to sound like Jesus. That's his introduction to Jesus. Now, no wonder, and in Ohio State, one of the students told me that a professor there was using the exact same approach to introduce Jesus to his uh, students. No wonder people who listen to a, an exposition like that will come away thinking, wow, Jesus wasn't really unique after all. There were a lot of people like Jesus wandering around in the ancient world, as liberal scholars often tell us. There's a few problems with Dr. Ehrman's introduction. One of the minor problems here is that almost every single detail that Ehrman gives is false. If you actually read the Life of Apollonius of Tyana, which Ehrman assumes his students have not read, he is twisting the facts in order to make him, Apollonius sound more like Jesus. That's a pretty serious charge for somebody so eminent as Dr. Ehrman, the most popular skeptical scholar of historical Jesus in the United States today. But it is true. Let me give you the examples here. A visitor from heaven, he says. Actually, the visitor who came at the birth of Apollonius was not from heaven. He was from the island of Pharos off of Alexandria, Egypt. He was the same Proteus. He was the same god that appears in the, in the Odyssey, of Homer's Odyssey. And Menelaus tries to tricks him by wearing seal skins and, and finding out what happened to Odysseus, among other things. Um, unusual divine signs in the heaven? No, there weren't signs. There was only one sign. A lightning bolt went up in the sky. He left his home to engage on itinerant preaching ministry? No, that wasn't why he left his home. He didn't like preaching in public. In fact, sometimes, very occasionally, he preached to the commoners. But when he did that, he had his servants, who he inherited from his father, Give him a bath and a rub down afterwards to wash, wash the cooties off. <laughs> he gathered a number of followers around him. Actually, there was mainly one follower, and the follower is uh, a guy named Damis from a city, city of Nineveh, which didn't exist at the time that uh, Philostratus wrote. He was the son of God. Actually, life of Apollonius of Tyana doesn't call him the son of God. He could heal the sick, cast out demons, and raise the dead. Well, again, not exactly. There was one case in which he's walking down the road, and he sees a marriage procession, which has turned into a funeral procession because the bride is suddenly keeled over. He goes up to this girl. It's raining, but he notices there's a little mist coming out of her mouth. And so he, he realizes she's not really dead, and he, she, he revives her. There's no raising of the dead in Life of Apollonius of Tayana either. At the end of his life, well, it wasn't the end of his life when... Apollonius was put on trial. It was two years before the end of his life. Uh, they could not kill his soul. Actually, they didn't even try to kill his body. They didn't even try to kill his body. He talked to the emperor, and the people around the emperor were very impressed by his words, and they wanted him. They were, they were cheering, and, and they, they really liked him, and the, and the emperor wanted to interview him later on, but he disappeared and went off to see his disciple. He went off to Greece after that, and he 
taught for another two years before he died. So every single fact, Ehrman has to twist and change in order to make, it, make him sound more like Jesus. Why is he doing that? Because he wants his students to believe that Jesus was not unique. Very simple. In addition to that, he's also what we call cherry picking. He's engaging in confirmation bias. He's selecting facts in order to, and he's, he, in one place he admits there's a score of other, scores of other differences between Jesus and Apollonius. But in the book where he's trying to persuade people that Jesus was not unique, he doesn't mention those other facts. In addition, Ehrman fails to mention to his students that Philostratus, the author of this book, wrote it 150 years after the Gospels were written. He was sponsored by Julia Domna, who was an opponent of Christianity. Her husband and her son both persecuted Christians. So he had motive and opportunity to borrow things from the Gospels if he had been so inclined. A serious scholar should mention those things. And, and Ehrman is a serious scholar. He should mention those things when he's trying to build a parallel. This is a sort of an argument. But he doesn't mention that. In fact, I've debated several skeptics. Um, two of whom, in our debate, brought up Apollonius in the same way, neglecting to mention these facts. Ehrman is not unique. Many scholars, beginning back in the third century, including Thomas Jefferson, including the Jesus Seminar, including Paula Fredrickson at, at, at Harvard University, many other scholars and, and many ordinary skeptics also bring up Apollonius of Tyana. There's another problem, and this is the biggest problem. Excuse me, I need to get a little water, I guess. The biggest problem with this analogy is that there are many, well, let me put it this way. How many people watched watch Saturday Night Live when you were growing up? A few hands, quite a few people have done it. Okay, good. I lived in Alaska, and we got it about two weeks late in those days. But I did like Steve Martin. And I remember, this is actually, Life of Apple of Tana is actually an extended Saturday Night, Night Live gig, gig. It is. It's hilarious, and it's hilarious that anybody would try to parallel Jesus and Apollonius, because the, Apollonius is nothing at all like Jesus. Take the question of miracles, for example. Apollonius's miracles include, for example, healing a boy who has been bitten by a rabid dog in the following way, and doctors in the audience may want to take notes. This is... Uh, medical procedure that you may not have encountered in the past. The dog has bitten the boy, so you feed the, the dog water, give the dog some water, and then have the dog lick the boy's wounds, and that will cure rabies. Okay, that's one miracle. Another one is if you have a satyr, you know, satyrs are famously lecherous. They're chasing women, and this satyr in particular had been preying upon women in a particular village in Egypt. And so when he hears about this problem, what Apollonius does is he gives the satyr a lot, a lot of beer. And beer cures his lechery. Did you know that? I'm not going to make any political comments. You know, it's a political season, but I'm not going to make political comments. But beer apparently cures lechery, in case you didn't know that. Also, in this book, you find the author describes various species of dragons in India. There are some that live on the, on the hills, some of them live in the swamps. Um, 
There, he describes griffins and all kinds of fantastic animals and whatnot. But one miracle in particular that marks Apollonius is not only different from Jesus, as Saturday Night Live is different from a, a, a documentary, say, but as opposites. And that is when Apollonius goes into the city of Ephesus, and he comes to the city of Ephesus, and the, peop the elders of the city come up to him and they say, Great sage, we have a problem. People are dying in the streets, like dying like flies. We have a, this epidemic. What are we going to do? And Apollonius points to a man on the side of the road who is a beggar. And he says, you see that beggar over there? The beggar is not actually human. He's a monster in human form. What you need to do is you need to stone that man to death. And they say, what? Yes, he's not human. They pick up rocks. They stone him. His eyes begin to glow red, revealing that he is actually a monster, and he dies. The great French anthropologist, René Girard, literary anthropologist, described this as an appalling miracle. And he says that he believes that there's a historical core to that miracle, that something actually happened like that. And, and he compares that to Jesus, who Jesus, of course, was also confronted with a stoning, but rather than causing it or egging it on, Jesus saved a woman who was about to be stoned. How different is that? How radically different is that? And how could anybody possibly read Life of Apollonius of Tana and, and compare them to the Gospels? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why they do this. And this is a great secret. Because for the last 2,000 years, the skeptical world has been looking for a parallel to Jesus. Somebody who would make Jesus less unique. Someone who would make Christianity less of a challenge to non-Christian theologies and ideologies. And frankly, this is the best they could come up with. This is still the best they can come up with. If you look at the other parallels, and Wallace mentioned Baal Shem Tov. I don't know how to pronounce his name exactly. He was a Hasidic Polish rabbi who sometimes had conversations with 500-year-old frogs and whatnot. Uh, and also, was 1,700 years later, grew up in a Polish environment, of course. It heard all the, all the Christian stories as well. Why do they need parallels to Jesus? Simple. Because there's a gap in the universe. Jesus challenges the whole skeptical enterprise, challenges the whole materialistic worldview, or the Buddhist worldview, or the Hindu worldview, and every worldview, even the Christian worldview. Jesus challenges us to our core as well. And that's why... These sorts of parallels need to be found in order to confirm a skeptical point of view. Therefore, Dr. Ehrman's argument, I believe, is a challenge not to Christianity, but to skepticism. That's the best they can come up with. Aside from all that, how much time do we have left? I can't actually see the clock. Oh, five minutes. Okay. Um, one can approach the Gospels in a traditional historical by traditional historical methods. And one can find that, yes, the Gospels are fairly close in time to... Uh, there's lots of historical evidence. There, we have the, the, the criteria of multiplicity. We have several different sources which confirm and in, independently confirm different, different uh, events in Jesus' life and Jesus' character and whatnot. But there's also what I call the fingerprints of God on the Gospels. Um, several years ago, I wrote a book describing... Uh, taking issue with the Jesus Seminar, and I said that there, I found 50 characteristics that the four Gospels share, 
and which make them unique and make them different from, say, the so-called Gnostic Gospels, which are not Gospels at all. For this book, what I did was I focused on 25 of those characteristics that speak to the historicity of the Gospels. And then five more characteristics that I bring in from other scholars. And I, altogether, there are 30 characteristics that mark the Gospels as unique and also mark the Gospels as historically credible. Fingerprints, or DNA, but let's talk about fingerprints. Fingerprints are, what, what do fingerprints do? What's that? They leave a mark, which you can't see if you look, you know, you look casually. You won't see the fingerprints on this, on this uh, wood here. Why do we have fingerprints? They are their maps. They define us. Yes, they define us. Do you think God gave us fingerprints because he wanted to define everybody uniquely or gave us the retinas that we have just, just because he wanted to define us uniquely or was there some other reason? Do these fingerprints have any other purpose? Well, I think fingerprints help us, help us grip things. We can hold things better because of the serrations in our, in our, in our epidermis. So we can grab and we can turn things. And this is what the fingerprints of God on the Gospels do as well. They mark a unique Jesus, a person unlike anybody else, and they tell us Jesus was really there. God has really walked among us. The Gospels can be trusted. They do that. They do something else as well. The characteristics of Jesus also grip the human race and have utterly transformed the human race. The world would not be what it is today, aside from the character of Jesus in the Gospels and the hold that is had upon the human race. Let me talk very briefly about five of the characters, five of these fingerprints on the Gospels. We don't have much time, so I'll be very brief, if I can remember which five I want to talk about. Number one is timing. Many skeptical scholars like to say that the Gospels were written generations after the life of Jesus. And then they would say that, oh, okay, maybe the earliest Gospel was written in, some say, 70 AD, the Gospel of Mark, or 60 AD, or some people even would say in the 50s, perhaps. And they tend to focus on the fact that, oh, 40 years, such a long time, generation after generation has gone by and has passed. So they must, they must have changed quite a bit. But actually, if you think about it, that's not a very long time. Jesus' early disciples would have been young people. They would have been young because they're traveling around Palestine. You have to be in your, probably in the, in the teens and early 20s, probably most of his disciples. So by the time the first Gospels were written, they would still be in their 60s, maybe even late 50s. This is not a problem, really. My, my father-in-law was in Nagasaki when the bomb that ended the war was dropped. What is that now, 71 years ago? No, yes, 71 years ago. That would correspond to 100 AD. If I wanted to ask him about that day, he remembers it. He hasn't talked about it, but he remembers it. The Gospels were very, very early. Number two, there are things within the Gospels that demonstrate their historicity. I'm not going to talk about that. Sometimes what I like to do is I like to go around and do a China Whispers, a telephone game and we find out how they change, how things change. And what I found as I've done that, it's kind of an experiment. What I found is I begin with something like, 
My name is not Leroy Yen, my name is uh, Wang Hongpu, to two of my Chinese students. And the thing that changes is the names, because Americans don't know Chinese names very well, so the names usually change quite a bit, dramatically, over 30 generations. The thing that does not change is the, um, the structure of the sentence, the length of the sentence, and usually the content of the sentence does not change so much. The British scholar Richard Bauckham has done a little bit of research on this subject, and he found that the, the names in the Gospels are precisely the same names and in the same order as names in, in the uh, ossuaries in ancient Palestine. In other words, the same people, the same male names and the same female names appear in the same order of frequency as names in the ancient graves, gravestones and, and, and whatnot in, in ancient Palestine in, from first century Jewish graves, which tells us that Bart Ehrman's theory of how the Gospels have changed, this is, his, this is his theory of how the Gospels came into being, a China Whispers game. They often use this analogy. Even Richard Dawkins uses this analogy. Over many generations, over dozens of generations, until finally somebody at the very end of the line, somebody guy named Mark in Rome, Oh, the gospel stories having passed over not only from one person to another, but also from one culture, one civilization to another, one language to another. Finally, the person that writes it down in Rome is, is not even Jewish, and he is telling the stories that he hears. The first thing that's going to change is the names. And yet the names we find in the gospels, I think, demonstrate very clearly that the change is not really... That, the people who wrote the Gospels were very close to the facts. They were very close to the facts. And the stories, therefore, that they tell are much more likely to be reliable than the names, all things being equal. That's one characteristic, two characteristics. I'll just mention one more because of time. Um, we have a mutual friend in, uh, at the University of Western Michigan. He's the head of the philosophy department there. His name is Tim McGrew. And he and his wife, Lydia, have redeveloped a, an argument for the Gospels that they call undesigned coincidences. Just to give one example, the, the Gospel of John in the feeding of the 5,000, the Gospel of John gives two interesting details. First of all, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, John says that Philip is from Bethsaida, the city of Bethsaida. And then later on, in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus asks Philip, where is the local Walmart? Where can we find the food around here? We need have all this big crowd of people. They're all hungry. Their stomachs are growling. What are we going to do? Where are we going to find the food? The Gospel of Luke gives us the interesting detail that the feeding of the 5,000 took place near Bethsaida. Now it all makes perfect sense. Why would Jesus ask Philip, of all the obscure disciples, that particular question? Because he was from that neighborhood. Doesn't that make sense? You know, if I'm going to look for food around here, I'm going to ask somebody from Charleston. I'm not going to ask somebody from Seattle, right? And there, according to the McGrews, there are about 30 or more of these interlocking between the Gospels, between the writings of Paul and the Gospels and other books of the New Testament. There's these interlocking facts, like pieces of a puzzle that fit together and demonstrate nobody would have contrived this. Nobody would have done this on purpose. They demonstrate that these, 
the writers of the Gospels are talking about something that really happened, and it's something they're remembering, and something that really, really occurred in their own fairly immediate past. Those are just three of the characteristics, three of the fingerprints of God on the Gospels. Okay, let me open it up for questions.